This is our second session on Philippians 1, 27 and 28. And last time we focused on that little word only and how this first line here is an all-encompassing statement of the Christian life. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. But we did not define the gospel. And that's what I want to try to do, mainly from Philippians in this session. So, Father, as we look at this all-important, glorious phrase, gospel of Christ, good news of Christ, don't just show us what it is. By all means, we need to see it as you have revealed it. But, God, help us to feel it as the very best news, as though somebody called us on the phone and said, somebody left you a million dollars, only it's way, way better. Help us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read the whole section. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Faith of the gospel. Faith probably in the gospel. Or the, the faith that the gospel awakens and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction and of your salvation and that from God. So how, how do you go about defining a word like this when you find it in the Bible? This is so common, right? Ninety plus times in, in the New Testament, nine times here in uh, Philippians, only one of them in Philippians has a modifier like of Christ. All the rest of them are all by themselves, just gospel. Paul expects them to know what he's talking about because he doesn't give a formal definition, just gospel of Christ. We know good news, good news. Gospel is from an old English word, God spell. <laughs> God, the old uh, English good, and spell announcement. Good announcement, good news. That's why the strange word gospel in English is used for good news. So what is the gospel? Now, there are two ways you can go about it. A broad, a broad way, which is fine, and a narrow way. And I want to do both for you real quickly, just the broad and then and the narrow. By broad, I mean you can go back to the Old Testament and trace the use of this. So let's do that real quick. Most people, when they're trying to find the meaning of the term good news or gospel, they go here to Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who publishes peace, who bring good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says, now here's the content, your God reigns. So the best news in all the world in Isaiah's mind is, is your and that's the people of God. It's, the reign of God is not good news for his enemies, believe me. But for you, it is really good news. Your God reigns. So you come over to the arrival of Jesus Christ and the writing of the Gospels. Here's Mark 1, 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming 
the gospel of God, the good news of God, and saying the time that Isaiah was talking about is fulfilled, the kingdom, the rule, your God reigns, is at hand. Repent and believe this good news that the kingdom has come. And then if you want to get specific, and I do, I want to know how is the coming of the reign of God going to be good news for me because I am a rebel. I'm a sinner. How in the world is it going to be good news for me? Later in Mark, you get this. The Son of Man, this coming of Jesus, coming up of the Son of Man and Son of God. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There's the hope. This reign of this king is not going to be first by slaughtering his enemies and making me a rebel somehow into some sinful co-potentate. No, no. He's going to give his life for me and ransom us from our sins. So then you get to the apostles, and here's how Paul most clearly, this is probably the best definition of the gospel in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 4. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, the good news that I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand and by which you are being saved. That's what the gospel does. That's why it's good news, saved from sin and death and hell and Satan. If you hold it fast, hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in, de- in vain. And he, here's the con content of it. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, namely, Christ died. So the gospel is an event in history. Christ died for our sins. That event accomplished a substitutionary deliverance for the sins of all who are somehow connected with Christ. In accordance with the scriptures, that gospel didn't, it wasn't an afterthought. It was according to plan already predicted in the Old Testament scriptures that he was buried, really dead, not just swooning, and that he was raised, triumphant, vindicating everything he accomplished right here for our sins in his death, raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So the gospel is a a plan. The gospel is an event. Christ died. The gospel is an accomplishment through that event of dealing with sins. The gospel is is a message. It It is preached. And the gospel is to be believed, not worked for. It is received by faith, and it saves. And then one more verse in our wide, our broad search to define the gospel. I love the climax here in 1 Peter 3.18. Christ suffered once for sins. So you see both. He died for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. We didn't deserve this. That he might, and here's the great climax of the gospel, bring us. God. If you ask what we're saved for 
or from, we're saved from sin, from hell, from judgment, from Satan, from destruction, and we're saved for fellowship with God. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So that's one way you can go about defining gospel by doing a wide, broad survey of the Bible to see how it's used. The narrow way is usually more illuminating for close contexts. So let's just stay with Philippians and see what we can find. First, I notice that he connects the good news of Christ with faith, faith of the gospel. So somehow, faith gets the benefits of the gospel, the link with the good news that that turns you from being um, opponents into those who um, get saved rather than destroyed is faith. So where else then, I ask in Philippians, does faith link us with the achievement of Christ? And here's the key passage. Philippians 3, 8 and 9. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. So there's union with Christ, which is going to be key. Be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. No, that will never do. That's not good news if I'm required to be righteous on my own. But that which comes through faith, there's the link. So somehow I get united to Christ, and the answer is through faith. Faith establishes my union with him through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So in him, I don't have a righteousness of my own that comes from law. I have a righteousness which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So when I stand before God, I'm not dependent on something I have wrought out for myself, but rather something that comes through faith is a result of my union with him, and thus it is a righteousness from God that is therefore Christ's righteousness. So it comes from God, through union with him, by faith to me. That righteousness from God in Christ is, I think, the same as disobedience. Let's read this. This is Philippians 2, 6 to 8. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient a life of obedience all the way to the point of death, even death on the cross. So when it says that in him we don't have a righteousness of our own, 
we have that which comes through faith. A faith union with him gets us his righteousness that God gives us, imputes to us, counts as ours, which is his obedience. And look at Paul saying the same thing in Romans 5, 19. As by one man, this is Adam, as by one man's disobedience, the many were appointed sinners. So we all became sinners in Adam. So by one man's obedience, that's what Philippians 2, 8 is talking about. By one man's obedience, many will be appointed righteous. So you see the connection between righteous and obedience, just like we saw back in Philippians. So here's my summary statement of the gospel according to Philippians. And I've given you all these texts. You can pause this and look at them for yourself, but I'll just read it. The gospel of Christ is the good news that Christ, who is equal with God, became a human being, obeyed God perfectly, died, rose again, so that by union with him, all who believe will be counted righteous with Christ's righteousness or obedience, and so be saved from sin and from destruction, and belong to Christ forever in the resurrection from the dead. And I would just say one last thing. Remember, this word means good news. I think we forget so often Christianity is about news. It's about news. It's not mainly a philosophy to be depended, it's news to be heralded. So in my personal evangelism, I regularly say to people somewhere along the way early on, do you know what the best, best news in the world is? And they generally say, mm, um, what? You know, they don't, they don't know what, they don't want them to say it. And you get to put your, your words, therefore, not in the context of an argument or the context of some kind of uh, controversial thing in the news, <laughs> the world's news. You get to say, I've got the best news in the world. And then you probably won't use a sentence that complicated. You'll figure out some simple, short way to say, Christ died for my sins and for everybody's sins who would believe on him.